Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. And we're going to take you on a tour of murder. But first, um, what do we got, Vicky? <laughs> I, I don't know how I feel about this voice you're doing I right know. now. I'm like, I'm doing like a, some sort of boat sort of tour voice. Like, oh my God. <laughs> and to the left, <laughs> and to the left, you will see. Our crumbling democracy. Yeah. A bag full of bodies. <laughs> oh, no. no. Oh. See those trash bags? All body parts. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. Uh, I'm very excited about mm-hmm. today's episode for very sp- a lot of very special reasons. I got myself a new, we'll say, desk accessory mm-hmm. that will probably... You'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> you'll well, you know already told me what it was. When it happens. I'm saying it. for the listener. For okay. the listener. When it happens, you'll know. Yeah. For sure. It's loud as hell. What else? I think that's... Is that it's, all? It's our the pre-show holidays. Banter? Congratulations on making it this far. Soon it's going to be the roaring 20s all over again. Is this our last one of the year? Like our last one before New uh, Year's? No, I think we got one more. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I think we did three in December. No, I think we. This is the because when does this one come out? Yeah. Okay. This is the this is the 29th. So this yeah. Is after the Christmas. Yeah. So this is our last one before New Year's. Yes. Last one of 2019. Oh, mew mew. Uh, <laughs> Resident Kitten just came in because she was like, "Yo, oh last episode of 2019. What? Yeah. She's like, I'm ready for the 20s. New decade. New me. <laughs> New me. <laughs> New decade. Me. So that's also chat. pretty exciting. We made it through another year. Thank goodness. I mean, but did we? Almost. Are we in another universe? I mean, technically, we haven't quite made is it through this a hologram? 2019 yet. Are did you a hologram? Did we actually die in 2012 and this is a projection? Oh my God. Stop <laughs> it. That's too much Matrix. I know. Uh, well, Save that for another episode. Yes. Uh, let's head over to the newsroom. Watching our TV 
local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. So this week we're in Brazil. Not literally in Brazil, but our news is in Brazil. I mean, that would be interesting if we were in Brazil. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a good son and what a good son does. Not the movie with Elijah Wood and oh, no. Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> no, not that one. No. No. <laughs> no. But you might say a good son would try to pass his mother's driving test for her. Okay. I'm, Maybe. I'm seeing some like... Monty Python-esque skits coming in now. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, whatever you're imagining, it's exactly true. Okay, okay. His name is Haider Schiave. Um, his mother, Maria, 60 years old. She had failed her driving test three times. This comes from the BBC. Um, so he decided to dress up as his mother. And I am talking like the full deal. Let me see. I don't know Sounds if you can legit. see it from there. But like that him? That's him. Yeah. Oh my god. Flower blouse. Did his hair. (laughs) He painted his nails. Did his makeup. Like the whole nine yards. I mean, the looks pretty spot on. Yeah. I'm sure he got caught when it came to the voice. (laughs) Um. Well, they said there was an instructor that said, "quote He tried to be as natural as possible. He wore lots of makeup with his nails nicely done and wore women's jewelry." But yeah, pretty quickly they were like, "I don't." this is the same person that's on not even that it was a man five o'clock shadow on you (laughs) but just generally that it wasn't the same person in the id so they called police um he was arrested for driving school fraud and misuse of someone's identity Mm -hmm. and confessed right away because he was just trying to like I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, His mom didn't know that he was going to do that either. (laughs) Of course not. He just decided to go and do it himself. She would have, like, hit him with a shoe or something. Like, don't. (laughs) What are you doing? people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, good Samaritans getting arrested. Good try. It's like, it's one of these things. It's like, I know it's totally a waste of, like, public resources and time to be arresting that you know what i mean because it's like mm-hmm. why waste the resources but at the same time it's kind of sweet <laughs> doing this thing for your mom i mean and the dmv i mean they're frauds so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> well at least the u.s i, I don't know Especially if it's better or Illinois. worse <laughs> yeah, right. i don't know if it's better or worse in brazil i just got the like notification to renew my um my license plate sticker so girl i just got a new car (laughs) i'm about yeah i had it with the dmv service (laughs) it was like oh my god got a new car so then you had to pay for license and registration fees Mm -hmm. oh my god just sucking money out of my wallet we're not gonna go into that but (laughs) it was not a pleasant time that day never a lot it was like bye-bye um, we're going to head over to Netflix and Kill. And this week, the only thing that we could be talking about, really, I think. The only thing? You don't want to talk about the weird Christmas movies on Netflix? No. Unless they're murdery? No. But, I mean, I'd feel like one. I want to murder after I watch stuff like that. But. <laughs> no, we're talking about the confession killer. Of course. Uh, I was very excited. It, the trailer came out around Thanksgiving. We were recording at that time. And so I was like... 
the instant it came out, it took like two days, I think, to get through it. Mm-hmm. You have watched it, correct? Yes. Okay. So for those that haven't, first of all, spoiler alerts. <laughs> Second of all, you should already know about this case, I think. Yeah. It's kind of a big deal. So it is the story of Henry Lee Lucas, who is an alleged serial killer. Um, supposedly, it spanned from 1960 to 1983. Total, he was convicted of murdering 11 people, and he did receive a death sentence for what they called Orange Socks, um, the Orange Socks murder. It was the murder of Deborah Jackson, but the documentary really delves into this question of whether he had actually murdered all the the people that he had confessed about, which was somewhere in the 200s. Yeah, or anyone at all. Right, right, <laughs> except for his mother. Yes, um, which confirmed he, kill. <laughs> yeah, that one was confirmed, and he was um, convicted and did his time for that. Which, again, is like, I can't believe those sentences are short enough that he would be out in his lifetime. But sure. I think he was like a kid, though, when it happened. Mm -hmm. So he shows up. The guy is like... I'm pretty sure if you were to imagine somebody as a serial killer, he is what they would look like. He has this kind of like droopy eye. He's missing teeth. He's kind of this scroungy looking. You're just making fun of poor people in Texas. (laughs) I mean, but they even say in there, like, the guy was like what you would imagine. But at the same time. Definitely creepy. mm -hmm. Especially when they described often that his eye would leak. Ew. Like, that's not part of this. (laughs) Um, But he shows up, starts confessing to murder after murder after murder. Once they, like, create a task force to what they say is facilitate the confessions, not necessarily to do the investigations, but because he was confessing for murders everywhere, like, along the southern part of the United States... From coast to coast, yeah. essentially. And there was some question brought in about police techniques using the interrogations. Mm-hmm. Um, or lack of techniques. Or lack of techniques. <laughs> lack of smoothness. Mm-hmm. Here's a case file. Read it over. It's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And even some of the, like ways he would have gotten information to take them to sites where he was saying there were bodies or where murders mm-hmm. happened. Later, he came out and said... It was all a lie. There, there is a ton of evidence that points to him being in other places and even like at other murders during the time that he was mur- yep. supposedly <laughs> murdering some of these other people. Uh-huh. But there, people showing back up alive. Uh, yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and then not mm-hmm. like Becky. <laughs> yeah. She's alive. Wait, is she alive? Yeah. Who is yeah, this? That's a whole. It's yeah. the the story on a whole is I told, interesting. I because my boyfriend didn't know anything about this, and I started watching it with him, and he got so confused. I'm like, that is that's the point of this. It's back and forth and back and forth, and you don't know what is truth and what is fiction. It's it's one of these like. There's a lot that went wrong at one time mm-hmm. in order for this to happen. And even when people were definitively bringing proof, like there were um, detectives who were putting together fake cases right. just to prove the fact that he doesn't know anything and that this is all just like one big system feeding in on mm-hmm. itself. The other factor you got to think about, too, is this was largely largely being handled by the Texas Rangers, mm-hmm. which as an organization itself does have a reputation to uphold right. as the law enforcement 
people of the South. Like mm-hmm. they and they touch on that in the series, kind of this reputation that they had gotten for being tough lawmen. Yeah. And I think it's for them and for other police agencies that were investigating these crimes, sometimes until you get a like a new guard of people in, it's hard to acknowledge failures of the past. Mm-hmm. And many don't want to because it does also mean more work and opening cases and reinvestigating and allocating more resources to that. But it doesn't do anybody any good to continue to like support these convictions yeah and there are certain states where it's worse like texas Mm -hmm. and california that's why you hear so much news about those cases being turned over and things like that because those two states in particular have a reputation of doing things like that like trying to skirt failures or mishandlings right it's that's i mean that's like a whole conversation in and of itself but i think that The ultimate goal for all of these departments is to seek justice. Mm -hmm. And if you're not trying to do that, no matter what the consequence is, like, okay, somebody bungled something, but they're retired. They're done. It's it's over with. Right. So why not go back and fix it? Right. You know, you're not actually directly hurting anybody. Yeah. And I will say there are agencies um, and police forces that had originally um, closed their cases because they had gotten a confession from Lucas. And there are some of those agencies have gone back and reinvestigated and were able to, you know, use newer technology like DNA mm-hmm. to figure out who the actual killer was and rectify those situations. Yeah. And I applaud those agencies for that mm-hmm. uh, because I think that is going to do more help. Cause obviously if he's confessing to these things um, that he didn't do, that person who actually did them is, is still, still getting away with it. Right. Is still out there. Mm-hmm possibly murdering more people. I know towards the end of the season, they get the um, confession from the older actual murder. Yeah. Yeah. And he, it was like 20 or 30 years later that they said, we found your DNA on someone on a victim's underwear. Mm -hmm. And he came and they were able, like, that's the, that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) it's, I thought it was well put together. I know one of your complaints a lot of times about series is that they're like too they go on too long or they mm-hmm. stay on a topic too long and I did not feel like No, this is this, actually pretty like quick. Yeah, it was good it was like four episodes, mm-hmm. four or five episodes. But it didn't good feel pace. like they were concentrating on one Mm-mm. thing. Mm-mm. Um so check it out. It's called The Confession Killer. It's out on Netflix. If you need something uh like New Year's Eve to watch <laughs> I don't as, know you, that. as you ring in twenty twenty. <laughs> I don't know if that's the face you want to remember as your, you know, hey. seeing old <laughs> This is that part of the show where we say content is not appropriate for all listeners. I know I will be talking about murder. And yeah. Mine's not gruesome, but yeah. there's definitely some children yeah. in it. <laughs> um, we're also going to be talking about some mental illness and mm-hmm. some things like that. So heads up on that. But yes, Janelle. If you know anything about me, my my other my other love besides murder. <laughs> oh, is one of my many loves. Beekeeping is dachshunds. Oh yes, and bright lipsticks and <laughs> also art. Art. <laughs> I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I wanted to look at the very interesting intersection of art and crime and not just like, you know, the basic ass stuff where it's like, oh, we're faking stuff to make it look like it's old or it was by somebody else. I'm talking actual bloodshed. (laughs) And I'll be honest, I was a little worried about this one because sometimes when you pick something, it sounds like it's narrow, (laughs) but it's actually pretty broad. And this is one of those times. So I'm very excited. People don't realize like the very like, okay, artists are strange people. <laughs> no. The only way I you can don't say that in say. a polite way. Can I bring um, up the b- banana duct tape thing that's been I mean that's a whole nother conversation about <laughs> the art market and, and museums the guy it. and art expos oh and gosh. it's like art criticism <laughs> like I went on a tangent with someone about it. I had like a group of art educators and we talked about it a little bit. It's like ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> you I'll do a whole po- oh uh, episode on that by myself in my room. That would be so funny. <laughs> to get it all out. Um, <laughs> but you don't realize how many artists are involved in shady and shifty things. Or, you know, getting into sword fights in the middle of a street over a prostitute. You know, things like that. <laughs> Although, I do feel like that if anybody was going to do that, mm-hmm. it would be some artist somewhere. Yes. So... <laughs> Exactly. And I run in an artist or a dictator. Exactly. I mean, what's the difference? (laughs) I run in different circles of of artists uh, in in the Midwest. And although all of them are different and they all do different things, they there's still like these distinct personalities in each group. And I'm like, we're all the same people. (laughs) (laughs) But I am going to talk a little bit about Frank Lloyd Wright. Are you familiar with that name? Yes. Perfect. I feel like he is a pretty big deal around here. Around here, definitely. If you live he comes in from Illinois here. or Wisconsin yeah. or Iowa, you're definitely going to know who the fuck Frank Lloyd Wright is. Mm-hmm. If you live anywhere else, you might not. Although he is yeah. kind of famous in Japan. When I first started going to college, I went to college near his home and studio in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. That was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yes. Yeah. So he uh, was an architect and an interior designer who originally hailed from Wisconsin. And he's a really prominent figure in the prairie style movement, which is kind of like out of the arts and crafts movement, which happened in the 19th, 20th century area. Um, He was very, very, you know, Midwestern guy. It was a very Midwestern movement. It was bungalow houses. Like, think of your classic bungalow house. That was Frank Lloyd Wright. Right. You can still see a shit ton of his architecture around here in Illinois Mm -hmm. and Wisconsin. But some of his really famous homes include the Roby House, Falling Water, Kentuck Knob, and his most famous home, the Talisian. And that is where our story will take place. Okay. <laughs> it's like. I feel like I need to look up a, pic- <laughs> a picture of this. Yes. It's. I mean, I think there's some at the bottom or in the middle. Oh. I put lots of pictures. Okay. <laughs> Let me scroll down then. Yes. So I'm going to state a controversial statement um, because we are in the mecca of Frank Lloyd Wright, but he is a trash person. <laughs> oh, coming um, in hot. Wait, coming in hot, hot take. Yeah, <laughs> hot take. <laughs> so Frank Lloyd Wright, or I'm going to call him FL Dubs. Okay. FL Dubs oh had <laughs> like so many, 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 many mistresses. Okay. 
like a ton of mistresses. I get the feeling I'm going to learn a whole lot about Frank Lloyd Wright that I never knew. You don't want to because I did not know that. Right? You're just like he makes pretty houses. Um, <laughs> But he also treated his staff pretty poorly. So these are like two key factors in in the upcoming tale I'm going to tell you. Um, He was marked by scandal many times, not just of a sexual nature, but also uh, he was constantly in debt and uh, murder. Yeah, Yeah, that I definitely did not know at all. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, the New York Post described Wright in an article from 2017 as a house builder and a home wrecker. That's which a is great. Like, I love that. I love that so awesome much. the most awesome thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's on the fucking nose. It's like everything Frankler is. So I read the book Death in a Prairie House for this, and it's a pretty interesting book. It's got a lot of prolific prose in it. It's very like poetic, but. There's also really great chapter titles, and one of them is called The Architect and the Feminist, and that's just like, it it sucked me in. I was like, this okay. story is amazing. All right. Um, no one likes to talk about his dark side, um, because he's like this darling Midwestern architect, but mm-hmm. I feel it's really important to talk about the dark side of artists, um, because it informs their art and their work. Our lives are directly connected to our work. Right, right. Um, of course, it's like a huge conversation you can have if you should separate the art from the artist. But for this case, we're not going to separate the art from the artist because it's like all connected into this story. Okay. Hear me out. <laughs> so FL Dubs was, <laughs> was married to Catherine um, since 1889, and they had several children, and their marriage seemed to be okay, um, but by 1900 standards. So it's like your husband's never home. You don't actually take care of your kids. There's a nanny. Sounds great. Everything's fine. Sounds okay. <laughs> However, he was like a regular old bad boy, and he was out like doing liaisons left and right with all sorts of women. I just had an image of him in like a motorcycle jacket right? on a motorcycle. With just like terrible half like sunglasses that just cover yeah. like the bottom of your eye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it really hadn't been an issue with Catherine. Um, she's kind of like, boys will be boys and let it slide a little bit because it was like one-off sleep with a woman, not a relationship. Now that didn't become an issue until <laughs> Martha Boughton Borthwick Chine, a.k.a. Mamey, oh my entered gosh. the scene. <laughs> Is that what they called her? Yes. Mamey. She was very into... Mema? Uh, Is it Mema or Mamey? Mamey. Mamey. Um, it's like a French name that was given to her because she was very into um, all these kind of weird literature movements. Okay. Uh, Mamey actually... Um, met Catherine Wright first through activities in a social club. And Mame was a- married to Edwin Chine, which, like, their names are... I want to say Cheney, but it's not. It's Chine. It definitely looks like Cheney. Yeah. Um, they had two children, and she was a very forward thinker. She was she was the feminist. That's where that whole The Architect and the Feminist chapter came out of. She was very, very well educated, and she was actually in the process of translating a Swedish philosopher's text. And uh, it's Ellen Kay is her name, even though it looks like Key, if you ever want to look her up. But there's this excerpt um, from her philosophy that I think kind of highlights the way uh, Mame was kind of infatuated with her. Side by side with the class war, the culture war must ceaselessly be waged by the young and among the young upon whom rests the responsibility of making the new society better from all than the old could be. 
So very much into like this kind of transcendental enlightenment feminist forward thinking literature. And she was translating this woman's text from Swedish to English. Okay. So she was not your normal mother and wife. She was, you know, a philosopher in and of herself. Especially at that time, like, yeah, having any sort of your own ideas Mm -hmm. as a lady. And other people being, you know, other people saying that she was considered intelligent and forward thinking. Yeah. That's kind of a huge statement. Right. After Mamey met Catherine, the Chines commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to design a house for them in 1903. In 1908, just a few years later, after a romance begins to bud, after building the Chine house um, between FLW and Mamey, Mamey's husband gave her a one-year test. He's like, you can do whatever you want with Frank Lloyd Wright for one year. And if your your affections for him are truly genuine, or if they're just because you're in close proximity, we'll find out. Yeah. If it's just an infatuation or if you truly feel that way. So this is kind of like that's wild. A weird like kind an of, open marriage situation a little basically. Bit. Yeah. Now they weren't like boinking at this point. <laughs> but there was a lot of like yeah. trepid hand holding. <laughs> gotcha. You know. Yes. Very um, intense. Very intense eye staring. A lot oh, God, of like no. long walks around parlors. I don't want intense eye staring in any part of my relationship. So it was a lot of very, you know, PG-13 stuff. So after that year, uh, Mamey's feelings had not changed. And so they were kind of deciding what they should do. And right, unfortunately, for Catherine as well, was very infatuated with Mamey. So Frank decided to leave Catherine and their six children, and Mamey left her husband and their two children, and they began their unconventional relationship. They were kind of still married, but living together in sin. Okay. <laughs> Artists. <laughs> yeah, oh my right. God. Uh, Catherine refused to give Frank a divorce. So this like whole charade was kind of like a big scandal, and this is what really kind of put like marked his name um during this period the two decided to uh kind of traverse europe and see if everything would settle down you know when you're in a totally debaucherous you know scandalous relationship in the victorian era the only thing to do is to go to france uh yeah <laughs> the only thing you can do is go to france where it's acceptable <laughs> basically i mean they had the moulin rouge exactly and the can can girls <laughs> And so, and that's, you know, in French culture, having yeah. a mistress or, you know, a man on the side is totally fine. God. As long as your significant other doesn't come on out. France. So <laughs> newspapers kind of began r- reporting on the two in gossip columns. And there was a lot of talk that Frank Lloyd Wright was going to be arrested if he came back to Europe uh, from Europe for adultery, which I think is pretty hilarious. Okay. <laughs> it never happened. You get arrested <laughs> for adultery at that time? Oh, Yeah. More so often, it was women who got thrown into jail for adultery. Of course course it was. Um, But if it was a man of higher standing, like he was considered of higher standing, and he actually came from a kind of religious background, okay, which I'll discuss a little bit further in my thoughts. So he was kind of held to a higher caliber. So there was a lot of gossip that he might be arrested for it. Of course, nothing would have happened if he was arrested. They would have probably fined him and gave him a slap on the wrist and told him to divorce his fucking wife. Um, But (laughs) that didn't happen. 
So they returned from Europe, and to seal their love, Wright decided to build the two lovers a mansion, and he called it the Talisian. Uh, this is actually... It's so posh. It's such a, like, a difficult thing to understand. Like, why did you fucking name it this way? Well, it is a very weird story. It involves a Welsh bard, poet, who sang poetry to a king in some weird era. Okay. Um, and whatever. <laughs> um, more often, people refer to it as their love castle or the love bungalow instead of the like Talisan. <laughs> I do not like either of those. There's also several other ways that people have pronounced it, but for this one, I'm going to call it the Talisian um, because that's the most common Midwest pronunciation there, of course. And he's you know. from here. He's from here. That's how so he called we're it right. that. We're not fucking Welsh. It was also Welsh back in like four... 09 was the year like something fucking ridiculous when writing was like we'll call it what we want because we are frank lloyd Wright. yeah hey so, the scandal <laughs> kind of greatly affected Wright's work he didn't receive another major commission from 1911 to 1916 he was like not doing anything okay so that's like a big deal now there's a lot of conjecture as to why Wright decided to leave his completely comfortable situation for another woman and not just have, you know, a chick on the side. There was some talk that he enjoyed Mame more and viewed her as an intellectual equal. And there was a lot of discussion that he was going through this midlife crisis and wanted to have someone that he could talk to on that intellectual level. Okay. Which, I mean having a you know liaison with a woman and living with another woman while you're married is kind of like the midlife crisis equivalent of having a ferrari in the victorian times yeah (laughs) yeah i suppose yeah but the biggest conspiracy surrounding this entire thing was that people believed he had a genetic predilection to wrecking his own life Okay. That's okay. I'm interested. How do you, how do you quantify that? Tell, tell me more, you... Janelle. Please tell me more about how a genetic connection. how your genetics make you want to destroy your Listen. own life. <laughs> FL Dub's father did the literally exact same thing. I okay. So <laughs> if that is true, I still it feel, is true. I mean, <laughs> there were newspaper reports about it. I still feel like it wouldn't be, it would be like less genetic and maybe just learned behavior. Well, there is a school of thought that um, when things happen to you that are traumatic, it affects your genetics. It's genetically transferred trauma. (laughs) So witnessing this, um, so his father was deeply, deeply religious. He was a minister. Okay. And he did this exact same thing, was married, had children, started seeing another woman and left, left them, didn't get a divorce. Like the same timeline. He was the same age. Yeah. It was exactly the same. Yeah. Frank Wright did not know his father. He didn't know what happened until much later in his life. And that was after pretty much the point of this already initiating so that's why there is a school of thought that it was this sort of like genetic trauma that had happened to him that caused him to want to keep doing these things that harmed him and he knowingly knew it would harm him but did it anyway 
So it's a lot of like psychoanalysis, a lot of these weird like traumatic theories. So I thought that was really interesting. I read an article about it and I was like, really? <laughs> so there's a couple different thoughts. Midlife crisis. He wanted someone who was equal to him intellectually or, you know, it's this sort of genetic inherited that's Weird, a very interesting trait. theory, and I hate to say this, but it's very Scientology also. Mm-hmm. Like, they come from very similar origin, like, schools of thought. Yeah. That kind of genetic... It's like... But it made me think of, like, whenever somebody says, when you grow up, you're going to turn out to be, like, your mother or your father. And you're like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not a fucking crazy, weird, off-the-handle Italian woman. And then you're like, oh, shit. I and then one day table, you look in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> one day you look in the mirror and you realize, I'm looking more crazy and Italian than normal. <laughs> so, I, because I had that thought, too, like, I never want to be like my parent because, you know, I don't have a great relationship with them. Um, <laughs> but when you come to a point of realizing that, that's when you break that sort of genetic trauma. And that is the whole basis of this. So he realized what he was doing, but didn't try to take the steps to change his behavior to break that pattern. And there's, you know, I'm sure you've seen the memes where it's like, we're just trying to heal our past traumas. Well, that's what that meme came out of was that genetic traumatic theory. <laughs> so there is an actual like scientific theory behind yeah. that fucking meme. We're all trying to heal our past traumas. Oh my God. <laughs> so... You know, there's lot. If you think about, look back at your history, or if you ever try to research your your ancestry, and you find all of these stories, and you think about the things that happened to your ancestors and and the way that you react to things now, there is this kind of thread uh, between you know your reactivity and what happened to them. So it's kind of an interesting thing to read about, <laughs> and that's why I thought it was really weird that somebody brought this up for this particular person. I'm like. Eh. I don't know about that. But. Part of me feels like I need to find out more stories of my ancestors now. Mm-hmm. To like, because literally the first thing that came to mind was a story that my mom used to tell me of my, I think my great grandma or my great great grandma coming over from Germany and landing in like. Texas or somewhere Mm -hmm. and the first thing they saw when they got off of the boat was like a cow getting slaughtered and (laughs) my great grandma was like I want to go home (laughs) and I'm thinking don't eat red meat (laughs) well no I'm like is that why I don't handle change very well (laughs) (laughs) see there are these weird threads but I so I was studying this a lot um, because we were talking about the effects of education on certain groups mm-hmm. of people, in particular, like Native Americans during a certain time period of this country's history. Right. Where we were sending them to reform schools to make them more white and taking away their identity. Yeah. Well, now we have people who are those descendants mm-hmm. who have all of this inherited genetic trauma and um, are inheriting all these diseases from things that happen to them. So there's like this whole movement towards um, cultural foodways coming back in the Native American mm-hmm. community because of all of these like heart diseases and diabetes that were never, ever part of their community. But when yeah. the U.S. only gave them lard and white flour as rations, you know, so there's all of these kind of connections. And if right, you dive right. deep into that, you can see some um, 
you know, weird connections to things. Yeah. But for this particular person, I was like, I don't know about that. That's an interesting theory, but I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that either. It's definitely worth, like, looking into, especially on your own personal level. Like, as I started to look at my ancestral tree, I'm like, all of these things make sense now. Like, the abuses towards people of, you know, minority groups and women right, in my family. Right. I understand why you know, certain people reacted the way they did through lineages. I right. Get it now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty woke, as they say. <laughs> Girl, no. Uh-huh. I'm woke to my own being. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just, anyway, back no. to uh, F- Dubs and Mamey. <laughs> so, uh, Talisian was Wright's ultimate pet project. It was, you could say, a labor of love. <laughs> Uh, do you have an anti-hype button that you can push (laughs) a negative hype button yeah no unfortunately Um, i don't so he constructed this monstrosity out of love and would continue to tinker tinker with the design the rest of his life he would go back and keep trying to update it and make it better um the original structure was a low wide sprawling prairie style mansion made of yellow limestone bricks uh, the plaster walls were tinted with sienna pigment, which gave it this kind of golden hue. So very much kind of copying the colors of the prairie. I was going to say, it's a very Midwestern yes. style, for there sure. There were um, banks of windows, like in every single room. So there was lots and lots of natural sunlight, and they didn't really have to put electricity in. So that's really nice. The exterior walls had shingles that were colored specifically to age to a gray that resembled the surrounding tree line. So he was really thinking about how the house inhabited where he was. The home also had no gutters, as Wright enjoyed the look of icicles dangling off the sides of the building. So he would purposefully design these roofs so that water would kind of stagnate to create icicles in the winter. Again, thinking about where he was. I mean, that's pretty clever. Yeah. And that definitely does happen around here. Oh, yeah. There was also a huge courtyard in the center and a vast garden filled with rhubarb and asparagus, as well as a thousand fruit trees, ranging from apples, pears, and plums. Um, Like a literal thousand? A thousand fruit trees. He wanted to actually move into this home and take less commissions and become a farmer. Interesting. Yeah. So he wanted to have he wanted to have a fruit farm. Um, obviously, that did not happen. <laughs> so there's also a huge water garden stocked with fish. And Wright was beginning his obsession with Japanese aesthetics. So the design was very like a Japanese koi pond oh, yeah. kind of a feel. And this just this place was like not only designed as a love nest, but it was the testament of his design theory of organic architecture. So creating things that become one with the environment that they're in yeah which is why there's so many kind of colorways and illusions and structural um, pieces of the place that make it look just like the surrounding area Mm -hmm. and the limestones come from that place so all of these things like it becomes one with the um you know midwestern landscape (laughs) which is a great thought i love i love the arts and craftsmen i love his architecture um and i love that theory but he is still a trash person (laughs) (laughs) so now comes the very interesting story of murder (laughs) but first (laughs) right (laughs) let's talk more about architectural theory (laughs) shared trauma um On August 15th, 1914, Wright was away in Chicago developing some plans for the Midway Gardens. Uh, That day, Mamey was visited by her two children, John, who was 11, and Martha, who was 9. 
The house was buzzing with a great deal of workers. Uh, draftsman Herbert Fritz, draftsman Emil Brodel, foreman William Weston and his 13-year-old son Ernest, and laborer Thomas Brunker. Uh, then there was uh, gardener David Lindblom, who was kind of out and about. But all the other people were kind of like in the house working. Okay. This wasn't common. This like was super common for all of these people to be there all the time, even if he was not there. Yeah. Um, he constantly had workers starting on projects and finishing things for him while he was working on larger pieces. So mm-hmm. not uncommon for all of these people to be at home. Now, there was also the cooks, Julian and Gertrude Carlton. The Carltons had only been working for the Wrights for a few months. The two were recommended to write by a business associate from the Midway Gardens project. Uh, the Carltons had come up from Chicago for the job and were touted as very experienced, exceptional cooks. There is little known about their exact background, but it is estimated that Julian was originally from Alabama and that his family originally came from Barbados or the West Indies. Um, okay. They're not 100% positive. He was kind of separated from his family. Uh, the Carltons had their difficulties working there. Being the only African-Americans within hundreds of miles was sure. kind of a daunting task. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. Uh, Julian wanted to leave only after two weeks at the residence. Around August 1st, Julian told his wife he was attending a dentist appointment in Madison because they were out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. A day or so later, he sent a telegram to her from Chicago and gave no explanation as to why he was in Chicago and not Madison, or if he was even at a dentist appointment. Weird. So a little strange. Yeah. A few days after that, he returned and said nothing to her. Wow. Didn't mention it. Nothing. Okay. Then, on August 5th, Carlton went into town to buy muratic acid from a druggist. This is all very suspicious. Muratic acid. Yeah. Okay. Then, on August 11th, Carlton had a confrontation with Emile Brodel, who was a worker, um, when he refused to saddle a horse for him. Now, Brodel began screaming at him and called him a name, but not the name you're thinking. He called him a black son of a bitch. (laughs) And so this was kind of the thought that really was like, okay, he wanted to leave. This is the you know, straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. He is done with this place. Yeah. On the morning of August 15th, Carlton went in around the house cleaning and kind of doing his duties and asked where the gasoline was because he was going to um, clean a stained rug with it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So he's going around asking people where the gas can was that they have because he's going to clean a stained rug. Right. Okay. You, cl- you clean rugs with gasoline all the time. Yep. That's my go-to trick. <laughs> I mean, if you're I saw it on Instagram that, that yeah. it works perfect. Now, meanwhile, Carlton had told his wife Gertrude to obtain train tickets to Chicago, and he was putting his notice in to leave. So she went off to go get tickets while he's like going to finish cleaning. This is when a spree began. Okay. Since it was lunchtime, everyone was in their respective quarters to dine. Mamey was with her two children in the courtyard for lunch. This is where Carlton would strike first. Mamey would be struck in the back of the skull with a roofing hatchet. Oh my god, okay. Next would be her son and then daughter. Um, there is no evidence that the kids even ran away. They were all kind of just in the same area right. in the courtyard. Right. And it was like a one-strike blow down for the count of course now he then coated the bodies in gasoline and set them on fire Mm. carlton would then move on to the other workers in the home 
he set fire to the interior of the house closest to the workrooms so as to block the people in and kind of cause a one-way path for them to escape. That's terrible. Herbert Fritz saw the fire and broke the window and jumped from it. He would break one of his legs. <laughs> Julian. I then, mean, I guess that's better than yeah. dying. Dying of fire. <laughs> Although or a in the 1920s, is breaking a leg really better? I don't know. <laughs> it's a toss up. Yeah. Julian would then enter the adjacent dining room. So these are all kind of connected through weird doorway systems mm-hmm. and kill Emile Brodel, the man who had yelled at him not but a few days earlier. Then he would go on to foreman William Weston and his 13-year-old son, Ernest. Now, they were kind of out of the drafting room, and all of a sudden, they came, you know, he came upon them with a hatchet. Mm-hmm. They fought back and escaped the house, but they would not come away unscathed. They had severe wounds from the hatchet. Ernst would die a few days later from these wounds, so the little 13-year-old boy passed away. Now, Brinker and Lindholm were next. The two both managed to fight off Carlton's attack. But again, they were so, you know, cut up. And they actually received really bad burns from trying Mm -hmm. to escape the room that was on fire that they, too, would die a few days later from the complications of their wounds. Carlton would then go down into the basement and he stuffed himself inside of a furnace. Oh, my God. Okay. Yep. That's totally what you do. Uh, he had planned to kind of succumb to the fire. That was what he was, he was going to do on his rampage and just sit in there and die. However, he did bring a backup plan just in case that didn't work. A bottle of acid to swallow. Oh my God. That's like really <laughs> intense. Like all, like all of that, even just those two things on their oh, own. Just be wait. So intense <laughs> to like do to yourself. Now he's in a fucking furnace. Which is kind of like a fireproof fucking box. Right. So the fire did not become too much for him. He did not become overwhelmed by it. And so he swallowed the acid. Oh, my God. Now, the workers who were away a little bit had returned while the blaze was beginning, and they put out the blaze. So the house, was the fire was out. Carlton was still down in the furnace, and he had swallowed the acid, but survived. Oh, my God. So when the sheriff got there, they found him, they located his ass, and they took him into custody and sent him to the Dodgeville jail. During his transport, it was reported that a mob was outside the jail ready to lynch him. And so they pulled him in and they locked him up and they had like 24 hour surveillance so that they didn't have a lynching on their hands. Yeah. Now, while this was happening... His wife was found out in the middle of a field with all of her personal effects in a suitcase. And she said that he was, you know, she was waiting for him to return, mm-hmm. that he was finishing up. And then they were going to go on the train because yeah. she had bought tickets. Yeah. Well, that never happened. <laughs> oh my God. So they decided to bring Gertrude in and interview her because this all sounded a little suspect, obviously. Mm hmm. They conducted the interview, and Gertrude stated, My husband had the notion that he was being pursued. He recently got to waking me up in the night at our quarters in the bungalow to listen for noises. He kept saying they were trying to get me. He would sometimes choke me in the night and threaten to knock my brains out. He would also take the hatchet to bed with him. Oh, my God. He forced me to tell Mrs. Brothwick that we were going to quit because I was lonesome. So that was her statement. Okay. So, based upon that, you could see he was kind of becoming a little unhinged. 
Yeah. Um, he felt like people were coming after him. To me, it sounded like maybe he had, was starting to suffer from a, a mental illness. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, if there was yeah. some of that. Because, of course, that, it would go undiagnosed mm-hmm. at that point. Definitely. Yeah. Especially because of his status in society. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of tells in that, you know, going to bed with a weapon, saying that he was hearing things, becoming violent, having outbursts. yeah. And reportedly, he was not a violent person. Mm -hmm. On August 27th, a continuance was issued due to Carlton's health because, you know, he swallowed fucking acid. Um, Julian Carlton was charged with just one death of Emile Burdell. Now, the prosecutors decided to do this as this was the only murder that had an eyewitness. And that would be the easiest to prosecute. So they only prosecuted him for the murder of Emile Burdell. I mean, again, like, in context mm-hmm. of that time period. Obviously, he killed all of those people. Right. But because one person survived and put him at the place of the crime, yeah. that's great. Yeah. There's no DNA at this time. No. There's no, like, fingerprinting that's going to really Quote, make unquote, any sense. fire science. Yeah, and fire science, yeah. not a thing. <laughs> not a They're thing like, then, not a thing yeah. now. <laughs> they look at the charred remains and they go, there was a fire here. Yeah. That's the fire science <laughs> of this time period. Um, so... That was kind of a big deal and something I thought was pretty interesting to the case. And mm-hmm. usually a lot of times in cases that are sensational as this, you know, yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright's involved. It's a servant killing people of a higher stature in their own home. Um, they would want to deal with them to the fullest extent. But I think they were very diplomatic in this and wanted to truly seal the deal and not have any questions. Yeah. And so they only charged him with the one death. Now, on October 1st, the trial was set to begin, but the judge received word that the defendant was too weak to attend. So two physicians were called to examine him just to make sure that wasn't a bluff or anything. Mm -hmm. You know, he did swallow acid. I cannot (laughs) believe that he survived that. Just wait. (laughs) Just wait until you hear what happens. Oh, my gosh. Now, after they examined him later that morning, Carlton was carried into the judge's chambers by two officers. Oh, my God. An attorney was then appointed to him and a plea of not guilty was entered. Okay. Okay. What the fuck? (laughs) The lawyer requested a slight delay in proceedings due to his client's health, which was granted. But the judge stated that they cannot wait too long. They wanted to get this taken care of. Right. On October 7th, Carlton died in his cell. (laughs) The official cause was stated as starvation. Oh, my God. No shit. Because he probably couldn't eat anything because he swallowed acid. Because he had no fucking esophagus. 1900s logic. (laughs) Thank you. What? (laughs) Guys. Ultimately, I mean, he was trying to eat, but he was throwing stuff back up. He could only have things that were liquids. Which I'm sure only made it worse, too. And how can you fix a throat in this time period? You can't. There's no, like, throat surgery. And there's no, like alternative to to getting sustenance mm-hmm. like you couldn't put a feeding tube in or exactly like, that wasn't really a yeah. thing yet yeah um so that's why it was marked as starvation not motherfucker swallowed a bottle of acid you know oh as God. they do now the one topic of discussion on this case that's always brought up is why the fuck did he do it why did he do it it doesn't make sense why would you just start killing people and not just leave And there are two possible theories outlined in a lot of the readings that I perused, particularly the book Death in a Prairie House. Uh, One of them being that he was just a madman, that he went crazy. He didn't feel he could escape his situation. So he went on a rampage to make sure that he could 
you know, take down as many people as possible. Right, right. The other reason that was given was that he had become a religious zealot bent on eradicating the Sinley household. No. <laughs> so that's I'm, the two main theories that I'm were like proposed. I'm going to put this out there and just say no. Yes. Um, I think it's, I, agree. I, I, just, <laughs> I do think it's far more likely that he probably was some suffering, suffering from some like maybe schizophrenia mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. which can very easily turn into something as horrible as this yes. if it goes untreated. So, I mean, based upon his wife's testimony and his age, because he was just beginning to get into his 30s, okay. um, yeah. I think Carlton was going through an episode that resembles schizophrenia. That's oh. the correct time, you know, that's the correct yeah. age. Usually schizophrenics don't begin to show until their late 20s, early 30s. Right. Um, right. It starts with uh, hallucinations or auditory um, things, mm-hmm. so hearing things. Mm-hmm. Um, waking up in the middle of the night, very common. Um, taking out these sort of really weird rage-filled reactions mm-hmm. on your significant other or uh, another family member is also very common. Um, mm-hmm. Ideas course, that you're being pursued or followed yes. or watched. Um, or, yes. yep. Lots of paranoia. So mm-hmm. I think schizophrenia is definitely, um, definitely it. The fact that none of his other employers um, that he had before this said anything about his behavior or had any issues with him whatsoever leads me to believe that it was something that was manifesting quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And especially being isolated in Wisconsin in an area of racial hostility and being the direct receiver of racial hostility would also add to it. Um, If you come at someone with schizophrenia in a combative way, it definitely intensifies that. So you see a lot of police training um, to deal with people with mental illness on the streets because a lot of them do have schizophrenia that's untreated. Um, There's a lot of tactics in talking to them and becoming personable, especially in times when they are very like agitated and paranoid. Um, And so that kind of reaction from that Emil Burdell fellow probably amplified um that kind of paranoia and rage that he was feeling Mm, yeah it was definitely just everything was just exacerbating his situation right uh whatever the case may be he definitely fucking did it yeah (laughs) yeah not disputing Um, that here there is a really great article that i put in there that i think really has a magnificent way of kind of putting this whole situation it was like love house scene of murder the hand of infuriated colored servant soulmate of frank lloyd wright and her two children victims hatchet used by maddened negro okay guys <laughs> so god that damn i think <laughs> god damn it that i think really shows what him and his wife were dealing with right yeah they were yeah. you know it probably wasn't thought about obviously the time period being what it was, but having someone who has a mental illness and being in such a hostile environment, yeah. the newspaper calling out all of these things. And I know that they do that to be sensational, but right. I think it's poignant in understanding this weird reaction of him wanting to murder a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's wild, man. But uh, I can so- definitely see how he would be. <laughs> Um, much more easily agitated because mm-hmm. I'm sure it was literally racism every day oh, yeah. being surrounded by all of these white people mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and some of them consider themselves to be enlightened. Obviously yes. not oh, so God. enlightened. Yeah. I'm sure so in a lot of the literature and things that Mame was 
you know, going through. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk about race relations and, mm-hmm. and that. And I don't I don't believe that the um, the rage that he took out on them was ne- necessarily directly related to that. No. I yeah. think it was kind of just a complete annihilation situation. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he probably had issues with working for them you know mm-hmm. it's a 24-hour job mm-hmm. you know you're you're on call all the time yeah you're having to serve lunch to one person a, and then an, another lunch completely different lunch in a different place to another person like there's a lot of yeah yeah things that you have to take into consideration yeah. but there's a picture at the bottom of the house after the fire damn so it was fucking tore up from the floor up uh frank lloyd wright would rebuild it Okay. And eventually he would move in there with another woman. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Come on. And so uh, there is a Talisian 2, and that eventually would catch on fire again. Oh my God. There was an electrical issue, though. Someone didn't set it on fire on purpose this time. There was an electrical issue, and Talisian 2 also uh, caught on fire. Okay. This is kind of towards did the end. Did he do a Talisian 3? He did. Oh my God. It was towards the end of his life, and he wanted to get it cleaned up enough so that it could become a monument yeah. to his architectural philosophy. Okay. You can visit the Talisian. It Where is, is that a, at? It's up in Wisconsin. Okay. It's a museum. You can go on an architectural tour. You can see his studio. Yeah. Um, they have original pictures of the building, which I have in here too. There's mm-hmm. not a whole lot because most of the things were destroyed in one of two of the fires. <laughs> of course. The first oh fire God. destroyed a lot of the home. The second fire destroyed most of his studio, so there were things lost. Um, he did move a great portion of his papers and files out after that because he finally got a fucking clue. Maybe my house is catch on fire all the Maybe time. Maybe my important stuff should not be kept in the most flammable <laughs> yeah. area of my life. <laughs> but um, he created a trust to save this in a couple other places. There's his studio, like you mentioned, visiting his studio. Mm-hmm. That's another trusted um, place where... You can go visit, but a lot of the homes that he created, you can visit, and it yeah. is worth a while yeah. to go and see and check oh, out. Oh, totally, totally. The architectural movement is beautiful. It's great. I love it. Um, he is a person, not so much. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely one of those times where you have to separate the art from the artist mm-hmm. because the artist was a piece of shit, but yes. the work produced. Um, he didn't directly murder anybody. He didn't directly rape anybody. He was he directly a piece of shit. He used women, but not. He wasn't violent towards. He just loved to sleep with. He just loved a bevy of women. women. Um, but he had deep seated issues, and also that happens when you're an artist. You just have this sort of arrogance about you, I guess. If you're a male artist in particular, we'll just put it that so way like, um, yeah. of this time period. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth uh, going to see. I I plan on going to uh, go up there in the summer nice yeah don't it's a do little it bit pricey for a tour but Is you get it? to go across the entire fucking landscape of this place yeah um there's also one in uh rockford okay. called uh, the laurent house that one i think is i've been in there it's a beautiful mid-century modern home it's fucking gorgeous they have a bunch of original stuff in there yeah that's a really great place to take a tour as well nice. you can hit up the main ones but those are like you know that's like a nice hidden gem mm-hmm. and then the talisian is like the ultimate culminating testament to his architecture. Yeah, yeah. But that is uh, FL Dubs and oh Mamey and the Thanks fucking Talisian murders. It's a roller it. coaster. Mm. <laughs> 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> it's As your I, fav- one of your favorite like, topics. It is, it really is. I got to combine one of your favorite topics with one of my favorite topics. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be discussing the murder of Ellie Perkins. She was born Ellie Present and was originally from a Jewish family. And eventually Ellie met a contractor named Don who had been raised Christian. Ellie was an artist that specialized in artwork that was hand painted in glass. So it's kind of like those little stained glass kind of things, Mm -hmm. but it's all hand painted. Um, According to the original website for their company called Glass Art. Classy name. (laughs) I mean, says what it does on the the tin. point. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Ellie attended Rochester Institute of Technology Art School, where she was trained in glass painting and, quote, found herself inspired by the ethereal qualities of glass, which best reflect her love of the realm of fairy. That sounds like so many middle-aged women I know. (laughs) (laughs) And she definitely, I think at the time that she was studying art and get it like starting to work on this glass stuff, it was very much that kind of hippie, like finding yourself enlightenment kind of thing. Um, Because this would have been during the like 60s and 70s. Um, her artwork appeared in many places, including Japan, England, Israel, and Russia. And she spent the summer showcasing her artwork at the Sterling New York Renaissance Festival. Mm, a Ren Fair. <laughs> a Ren Fair. I think it was more of like an art festival. <laughs> can um, I just pretend it's like the Ren you Fair? Can. Yeah, just a Ren Fair, but with turkey legs more and glass. <laughs> yeah, as it, I just imagine somebody with like a turkey leg, like in a gallery. Could you imagine a stained glass piece? Of a turkey leg. That'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That would be something. Uh, in an excerpt from Metro Community News article titled, Ex Hippies Turn Successful Businesswomen. You can too. <laughs> yeah. And this is from 1995. You know, I'm not surprised. There right was now. that weird, like, hippie resurgence in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> and, well, and this was very much like, look at how this hippie has turned her life around like that was kind of the idea mm-hmm. um, so this is just a, an excerpt from that article quote it's a long way from Woodstock to Williamsville oh boy <laughs> <laughs> and it had been a lengthy journey for Ellie President Perkins of Hopkins Road from the streets of Haight-Ashbury to the malls of local suburbia where sales of her glass sun catchers have made her one of the richest ex-hippies in western New York <laughs> Here they are. This is my collection. This five foot one mother of two recently announced with a satisfied grin, pointing to her current stock of the mostly 11 inch by 14 inch rectangular glass renderings of animals, rural scenes and assorted plant life, which have made her a successful housewife entrepreneur over the past 16 years. 
I'm just going to put it out there that I'm not a fan of stained glass. You would not be a fan of this at all. Yeah. Because it's very... Um, Mom art. <laughs> yeah. And like craft fairy. Mm-hmm. I have no stuff. problem with crafts. Like I love... No, but love it's something craft, that a but... mom would make and then take yeah. to a craft fair and sell for way too much money. Mm-hmm. Like very much. So, so I don't much know. Did wrong I put her website in? <laughs> um, yeah, I will have I mean, to show you. You do cause... you. You sell your art. You get it. Right. But I just there's something about like that whole like nature scene, arts and crafts movement mm-hmm. that I want to hit my head against a wall. <laughs> <laughs> so when Ellie and Don met, it was shortly after that that ellie had taken her first scientology course man stained glass and scientology Mm. you really have it all (laughs) yeah and she from what i can understand i mean obviously i mean they they search out entrepreneurs they do they do (laughs) search out entrepreneurs and we'll we'll get into this a little bit later um but from what i could tell when she wasn't doing scientology stuff she still was working on artwork and and doing that Mm -hmm. whole thing um but obviously as you get into the make an l ron hubbard stain no no that would have been amazing though (laughs) um quick somebody google that (laughs) i would not be surprised if it exists somewhere um although the guy is not exactly the most photogenic but that's fine the um the way that ellie tells it she had been on this journey to really find her place in the world and this hippie mentality um really ended when a boyfriend of hers was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for drug addiction you say tomato i say mushrooms (laughs) yeah right um it's hard to say what pulled her into Scientology at the time, but in modern day, most people are pulled into Scientology via body routers, um, which is what they call the people who are like stationed on the street, offering the free personality tests, or like handing out brochures. Like, those are bar- body routers. They're I supposed love to a good people. personality test. <laughs> yeah, it is, by the way, not just a personality test. It's a personality and an IQ test, and they do them back to back, and it's like four or five hours of your time. So that heads up is- on that fucking ridiculous yeah. <laughs> so it's possible like and that's the other thing with these personality tests when they bring you in the thing at the end is a pitch for scientology of courses course. yeah so mm-hmm. it's possible that something similar to this was happening in the 90s but it's hard to say i couldn't really figure out like what the mitigating factor was that like brought her in it's also possible that she found some of like hubbard's old Writings, um, L. Ron Hubbard, for those that don't know who I'm talking about. L.R.H. Yeah, the creator and founder of Scientology. Um, You know what the L stands for? What? Lafayette. Ugh. Yeah. Gross. I know. (laughs) It's it's pretty bad. (laughs) Lafayette Ron Hubbard. Not not the L. Ron? No. He's L. Ron. (laughs) No. Um, He's gross. Yeah, I know. I've seen pictures of him. (laughs) Although, you know, I like a good sci-fi novel. (laughs) True. Yeah, that... mm, uh, Don't even get me started. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason Scientology exists, but that's another story for another time. Yes. Um, (laughs) Another eight-hour episode we have to do. Yes. Oh, my God. So, it's entirely possible like he found some she found some of his writings and they just sparked her interest and she's like maybe i should check out the scientology thing either way both she and her husband don joined the church and then credited their use of scientology for the success of their art business Mm -hmm. 
not long after getting married, Ellie and Don had two kids, Jeremy, who was born in 1975, and Danielle, born in 1976. While raising their kids, Ellie and Don continued the long, arduous journey through Scientology, doing various auditing sessions, and then they eventually gained the status of clear in 1979. So... I'm, I tried really hard to kind of like take out all of the, but there is some things I need explaining if you're going to understand this. So you go into Scientology, you do these courses. The whole point is you're working your way up the bridge to clear, which means you are clear of like engrams. You're um, at that point moving on to the OT levels. And OT means operating Thetan. That's kind of like your, um, when you're supposed to have like perfect recall and not get sick anymore and like all that fun stuff. OT is also where you learn about Xenu and the aliens and all that <laughs> fun stuff too. So per the Scientology website, <laughs> what is Scientology.org? <laughs> cool. Um, yep. <laughs> Auditing is defined as, quote, Scientology counseling taken from the Latin word audere, which means to hear or listen. Auditing is a very unique form of personal counseling, which helps an individual to look at his own existence and improves his ability to confront what he is and where he is. And a clear is a highly desirable state for the individual achieved through auditing, which was never attainable before Dianetics. A clear is a person who no longer has his own reactive mind and therefore suffers none of the ill effects that the reactive mind can cause. The clear has no engrams, which, when re-stimulated, throw out of the correctness of his computations by entering hidden and false data. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing this just in case some of you like yes. don't know Scientology speak. So... Soon after achieving this um, clear status, which, like I said, isn't the end. It just means you move on to the OT levels. Mm-hmm. There um, is no end. <laughs> there actually is literally no, no end. end. There's still, I think, a couple OT levels that still have to come out yet that haven't. And, maybe and they, they never, never will. will, probably. <laughs> um, the Perkins family, they moved from New York to California, where Ellie started working at the Celebrity Center for a little point in time before returning to New York. Okay, so there is a little bit of Scientology history I have to provide here for some context mm-hmm. for the events that are going to eventually um, perspire. So according, again, according to Scientology.org, this is what modern day Scientology has to say about their views on psychiatry and psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is actually in the FAQ. Uh, of their website, it says, why is Scientology opposed to psychiatric abuses? And I'm not going to go through all of this, but the Scientology objection to psychiatry does not stem from any desire to deny the insane treatment. Rather, the church objects to the mistreatment of the insane, which is psychiatry's historical hallmark. That is why the church supports the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, which is a Scientology organization, which works to expose and eradicate the brutalization of parents in the name of, quote, mental health. Over the years, the Citizens Commission has investigated and exposed thousands upon thousands of cases of psychiatric negligence, abuse and brutality. Um, so it goes on. Um, totally wrong. There are some people who... Do yeah. abuse the system a bit, but there not is. for what the purpose they're saying it is for. <laughs> right. So, 
I mean, they go on to say, like, today, the marketing of antidepressants has likewise reached nightmarish proportions, and the scenario becomes even more disturbing. And one considers the explosively violent episode such drug prescriptions or such drugs partic- per- precipitate. And then, anyway, it's, yeah, it's a whole thing. I mean, to be <laughs> honest, I went to a doctor when I was a teenager, and they mm-hmm. kept telling me that I had depression, and I didn't. Yeah. I had anxiety, which is a different okay. thing. Okay. Um, and they prescribed me an antidepressant, yeah. which did the reverse that it's supposed to. And okay. That's what happens when you give the wrong drugs to the wrong people. Sure. So I can understand where they're coming from. Right. Because I have experienced that. Yeah. But <laughs> once you that got it is fixed. very, very, very rare. Yeah. And I was going to say, once you got it fixed, did it help? I mean, I, did, did you... I didn't have to take any medicine. Right. So <laughs> they're like, take these pills. And I took them for a month. And I go, they ain't no yeah yeah not what i'm feeling yeah (laughs) but like you said that doesn't that's That's not like very very rare and i was also a teenager which you're not supposed to give those to teenagers which is a whole nother thing that was wrong oh my gosh that's a pussy gives a laugh to people who are Mm -hmm. under 18 okay (laughs) um so i've always found hubbard's stance on psychiatry really interesting because much of Dianetics is actually derived from some psychological theories, as well as Hubbard's own claims of working in places such as Oaknell Hospital during the development of Dianetics. <laughs> According to John Atak's book, Peace of Blue Sky, Scientology, Dianetics, and L. Ron Hubbard Exposed, which is a fantastic... It's a very long title. <laughs> it is, yeah. Peace of Blue Sky is what you need to look for, mm-hmm. but it is a fantastic book on Scientology. It is like, John Atak is kind of considered the premier like Scientology expert. Mm-hmm. He was really the first one to kind of put together all of these volumes of what it is and how it works and the history and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely check it out. I know I've brought it up on the show before, mm-hmm. but that's because it's very good. Um, so according to that book by Johnny Tack, he says, quote, it was claimed that through Dianetics, the individual would be freed of psychoses and neuroses. Among the psychosomatic conditions Dianetics claimed to cure were asthma, poor eyesight, colorblindness, hearing deficiencies, stuttering, allergies, sinusitis, arthritis, high blood pressure, coronary trouble, dermatitis, ulcers, migraine, conjunctivitis, morning sickness, alcoholism, and the common cold. Even tuberculosis would be alleviated. I mean... It can do it all. (laughs) Um, ATAC also points out that much of the basis for the therapy was, quote, a reworking of ideas abandoned by Freud in favor of the interpretation of dreams. Um, He later goes on to say in Dianetics, the modern science of mental health, which is um, this piece of Dianetics that Hubbard put out. Um, Freudian ideas were presented in a new elaborate language. Dianetics differed by approaching the general public directly rather than through the psych- uh, psychiatric or psychological professions. Dianetic al- Dianetics also completely avoided libido theory, the interpretation of dreams, transference, and complex Freudian evaluations. But for whatever reason, maybe because like psychiatry is such a direct competitor to Dianetics, at least it was when it first came out. It seems that the church's stance got a little bit more bitter and angry later on Mm -hmm. um, when this was like 
post Hubbard going into hiding because the government was after him. Um, and this is, let's see, this is from a Hubbard communications office policy letters. So they were releasing all these policy letters to kind of run things from where he was mm-hmm. hiding at. Um, it was titled, it was series 12 titled propaganda by redefinition, redefinition of words. Okay. So this is a direct from L. Ron Hubbard. It's all just cyclical direction. nonsense. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So this is from Hubbard's own mouth. Quote, psychiatry and psychiatrist are easily redefined to mean an antisocial enemy of the people. This takes the kill crazy psychiatrist off the preferred list of professions. The redefinition of words is done by associating different emotions and symbols with the word that were then were intended. Scientologists are redefining doctor, psychiatry and psychology to mean undesirable antisocial elements. The way to redefine a word is to get the new definition repeated as often as possible. Thus, it is necessary to redefine medicine, psychiatry, and psychology downward and define Dianetics and Scientology upward. This, so far as words are concerned, is the public opinion battle for belief in your definitions and not those of the opposition. A consistent, repeated effort is the key to any success with this technique of propaganda. Yikes. So this is about when they were just like totally (laughs) anti-psychiatry, psychology, Mm -hmm. any of that. Okay. So back to the Perkins family. Sorry, that was all like, Mm -hmm. if you know nothing about Scientology, this will all make sense now that you know all of (laughs) that very basic Scientology Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge. So Jeremy Perkins, which was the eldest son, was leading a seemingly normal life and had dreams of becoming a rock drummer. As you do. (laughs) As you do. Um, Some folks describe him as somebody who would like do anything for you. Just a very kind guy. In early adulthood, he lived at home and worked for his father's contracting business and helping his mom with her glass painting business on the side. It wasn't until he was 24 that people began noticing kind of like strange behavior from Jeremy. As you were going through yours, I was like, "Ah, ours are so similar. (laughs) In fact, Um, anyway. So he told a friend and his father that he was hearing voices and the solution his father told him was tell the voices to stop. I mean, sometimes you need to be direct with them. <laughs> Just stop, guys. Hey guys. Give me a minute here. <laughs> um, but obviously, I mean, this is clearly not something that worked or would have worked no matter and how probably, hard they yeah. tried. <laughs> not recommended. Yeah. Um, and instead, Ellie and Don opted to send Jeremy um, to. So they decided to send him into the Sea Org at that point in time because. As you do. Yeah. And the Sea Organization. Hold on. I might go into it here after that. Makeshift this. Navy. Yeah. So. Quotes on the Navy. They were hoping that the strict requirements of the Sea Org would like get him into shape, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've never heard about. Like if you guys have ever heard about the um, the billion year contracts, the C organization is where those are signed. That's like the serious shit is the C org. Yes, also a quote unquote navy. Um, <laughs> Yet no one knows how to drive a boat. <laughs> and and like you have to the billion year contract, you have to sign that before you become a part of the organization. And that's where a lot of people come into issues when they're trying to leave Scientology. Mm-hmm. And all that fun stuff. Um, Are you at a billion years? No. 
back on the boat. <laughs> uh, before the end of the year, however, Jeremy was rejected from the organization. According to um, CBS's 48 Hours, he was rejected for what was perceived to be increasingly bizarre behavior. Which, so, I mean, that's got to be pretty fucking strange for this organization. <laughs> so he returned home and continued working for his father. But for obvious reasons, his hallucinations and delusions only got worse and worse as time went on because they were going untreated. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't long before he was labeled a PTS, which is a potential trouble source. And those are like the people you got to watch and report on. Um, Ellie and Don took him to a series of doctors, some that did CAT scans at the family's request, claiming the hallucinations were a result of some sort of accident in a truck in 2002. But none of the CAT scans found anything. And these doctors were like, no, really, this isn't because of this accident. You need to take him to a psychologist. (laughs) So they suggested taking Jeremy to a psychiatrist, um, which, of course, is a request that the Perkins would not honor. And it seems like the only steps they actually took was filling a prescription for the sleeping pill Sonata, which obviously didn't help. Yeah, I don't think you could just sleep off. Sleep off the voices? (laughs) Is that how that works? Hmm. On August 14th, Jeremy was caught trespassing on the University of Buffalo campus. When he was um, confronted by police, he began fighting back, resulting in his arrest. One court ordered psychiatric exam later, and it was confirmed that Jeremy was schizophrenic. Called it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, He was remanded into the custody of a hospital where he stayed for a few days before Ellie managed to convince the facility to release him. Yay. No. (laughs) He later went to a neurologist that again confirmed the diagnosis of schizophrenia. As if you didn't know, (laughs) you might be schizophrenic. (laughs) Yep. But Ellie and Don refused to place Jeremy on psychotic medications due to the conflict with Scientology beliefs. Yeah, I know. It's almost as bad as people not vaccinating their children. I know. (laughs) So for most of the remaining summer, the Perkins continued to uh, seek out a treatment without disobeying the practice of Scientology. And according, again, to 48 Hours, it came to a point where Jeremy was sleeping in a chair outside of his parents' bedroom because he believed that there were aliens in his bedroom. But only his bedroom. Only his. Else. Okay. Yeah. In the fall, the Perkinses took Jeremy, who at this point was 27, um, to a Scientologist and osteopath, Dr. Conrad Malfair, who promoted natural drug-free healing. Yep. yep. So that's Naturopathy for schizophrenia. He was Scientology approved. It works. It, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, again, from 48 Hours, quote... Nunchereno says Malfair's clinic had a uh, had an unusual explanation for Jeremy's symptoms. They conclude that he was suffering from certain digestive problems, that he had certain chemical toxins in his body, and he needed to be purged of it. And he needed to be through he needed to be energized through vitamin therapy, which vitamin therapy is a big thing also in Scientology. Um, when you do a uh, what is it called? 
I forget what it's called. There's a there's like a, a seminar process thing that you do where you do a lot of running, take a lot of niacin, more running, a lot of niacin. I was gonna be like a B12 shot. <laughs> there's some vitamin in there that you take too. It's a whole thing. Oh my god. Um, the purification rundown. That's what it's called. Purif. The purification rundown. Run yep. I get it because the running. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that, but um, so that's what his um, Scientology doctor thought. Oh boy! Purge, purge of the toxins. Take some vitamins. It's and your schizophrenia will be good. So they like went it was with never there in the first place. <laughs> so they went with the vitamins, of course, and it was can't a, hurt. It was a treatment that didn't work. Huh? Are you shocked? Yeah. <laughs> Instead, uh, Jeremy only became increasingly more aggressive and suspicious that Ellie might be trying to poison him. Yeah, I'd say made me run a bunch and take niacin. <laughs> yeah, he didn't do that part of it, mm-hmm. but they definitely like put him on a bunch of vitamins and like yeah. yeah. So in February 2003, Ellie and Jeremy went to the home of self-taught natural healer named Albert Brown, who asked Jeremy if he thought he had any problems. His response was, quote, sometimes I think I'm Jesus Christ. Only sometimes? Sometimes. (laughs) It was decided that Jeremy would move into Brown's house the following month for treatment and while he was packing for the trip on March 13, 2003, Ellie and Jeremy got into an argument that... Don had come home from work to like diffuse. Mm-hmm. After he left and returned to work, Ellie told Jeremy to get in the shower. That is the point when Jeremy attacked his mother. According to Jeremy in a statement given to police, quote, when I got out of the shower, I saw that my mom was on the phone in the kitchen. I went into the kitchen and took a pointed knife around 12 inches long with a brown handle. I held the knife in my right hand and be- and behind my back. And when she hung up the phone, I tried to, or, and she hung up the phone. I tried to slit my wrist after the shower with a utility knife, but I wouldn't die, so I decided to do my mom in instead. I pushed her into my bedroom downstairs and stabbed her in the chest and right arm. She was screaming, no, don't, Jeremy, don't. I stabbed her about four to five times before she fell down. I was using a cross-stabbing motion while she was standing. I then stabbed her about ten more times in the stomach after she fell to the ground. I knew she was a goner. I then tried to cut her right eyeball out a bit. It would not come out. I believed her eyes were evil. I took the knife into the kitchen, cleaned it up in the sink, and dropped it onto the floor. I pulled the phone cord out of the wall. I was going to put the knife and my mom in the basement to hide her. We have a fallout shelter uh, down there, but my neighbor Sharon came over, so I hid in my bedroom. I did not want her to know what I what I did because I liked her a lot. A short time later, police a police officer came and asked me where my mother was. I let the officer in and showed him where she was. I told the officer someone must have broken to the house and did this. I was then I then was transported to the police headquarters where I was given my rights. I told the detectives what I did and why. I have been getting angrier and angrier with my mom because of the way she treats me. She gets mad at me when I play my drums in my room and she makes me take these vitamins every day. When she made me take the shower this morning, that was the last straw. I believe I have lived different lives for the past thousand years and wished I was in another life now. According to an autopsy following her murder, it was determined Ellie was stabbed 77 times. The difficult thing about listening to that is that he was, like, really cognizant of the fact that he did something wrong and was trying to hide it. Yeah, it's an interesting 
thing because he was like, and it wasn't, the, the thing is though, is he wasn't, it seemed to me, trying to hide it because he thought he was going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't want this friend of theirs to find out because he liked her. Mm-hmm. And like it wasn't that it would it's more like she would be disappointed in me, mm-hmm. not like I'm gonna get in trouble and go to jail. Yeah. So it was and even like even the last couple of things, like I thought her eyes were evil. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to cut out one of her eyes. Mm-hmm. And I believe I've lived different lives for the past thousand years, which is a Scientology thing. That's like Yeah some of this pat they have some past life stuff mixed in there <sighs> yeah uh it was just very brutal very brutal yeah that's definitely rage filled in the description mm-hmm. jeremy was arrested and charged with second degree murder and fourth degree criminal possession of a weapon and he was immediately put on antipsychotic medication following his arrest along with the obligatory psych evals a 2003 eval indicates that Jeremy suffered from chronic paranoid schizophrenia that went entirely untreated. And then in July of 2003, Jeremy was found not responsible by reason of mental disease or defect. He was placed on six months probation, but the judge ordered yet another psychiatric examination to, quote, determine whether he has a dangerous mental disorder. And if the said defendant does not have a dangerous mental disorder to determine whether he is mentally ill. Those examinations were done by the Rochester Psychiatric Center in January 2004, um, and this is what they found. Quote, the defendant has a dangerous mental disorder that in that the defendant currently suffers from an affliction with a mental disease or mental condition which is manifested by disorder or disturbance in behavior, feeling, thinking, or judgment to such an extent that the defense... Uh, the defendant requires care, treatment, and rehabilitation, and that because of such a condition, the defendant currently constitutes a physical danger to himself and others. Furthermore, they stated his psychosis had never been treated with antipsychotic medications, and it appears he was acutely psychotic at the time of the offense. In the period preceding this, he had been sleeping on a couch in the living room because he feared there was an alien ship in the ceiling of his bedroom. On the morning of the offense, his parents threatened to take him to Albert's place, and he was scared of this because of paranoid fear towards others who lived there. He felt his mother's face had an evil grin and her eyes were evil. In fact, during the offense, he attempted to remove his mother's eye, responding to psychotic thought processes. The report at this time said he continued to experience auditory hallucinations along with some other symptoms but he had dramatically improved um once he started taking medication Mm -hmm. like big time however he still like thought that there was the alien living in the ceiling of his bedroom he still thought he had lived um thousands of past lives and some of those things but like his behavior had gone from being really erratic to like not as much Mm -hmm. Who'd have thought? <laughs> get treated. Huh. Things get sort of better. Um, after all of this, the courts determined that he must be committed to a state ho- hospital. Um, of course, there was quite the panic within the church 
following Ellie's murder, and they quickly move to like distance themselves from Jeremy Perkins, mm-hmm. as they do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> although he himself do a hard nose goes. <laughs> oh, for real. I mean, they were like instantly. They had people from OSA, um, which is the office of. Uh, I would have. To, it's like mm. they're kind of like. handling hazard office. It's kind of like the... um, I think they might have renamed it to the... I think it might be the Guardian office now. Um, But they're kind of... Yeah, they're kind of the enforcers is a good good way to say it. Um, Like, they were calling some people to be like, don't talk to anybody unless it's the police that come to talk to you and tried to quiet everything down and then distance and then... Yeah. Jeremy himself has never actually blamed the church for what happened. Although his father and his sister, from what I can tell, continue to remain in the Church of Scientology. Mm. And of course, Ellie's murder has not swayed the organization's opinion of psychiatry as a quote-unquote pseudoscience. This was also post um, Lisa McPherson's death, Mm. and which had just happened like a couple years before, like three or four years before. And she ended up dying after suffering from a mental break and being put into essentially solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think after that, they had some things in place to kind of like quiet everything down. Yeah. You know, they're really good at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, unfortunately, the undiagnosis of mental illness led to a break essentially, that killed what potentially could have been a wonderful artist. Yeah. So, so basically that. Scientology kills. <laughs> In so That's many what words. you're trying to say. In yeah. so many words, yes. Um, so, if you need something... To get your mind off of murder. And, in this terrible world we live in. <laughs> and maybe see some beauty in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, check out this podcast. <laughs> hey, Linda. Hey, Louise. What's wrong? Well, I love podcasts, but I need a new one. Do you know if there are anywhere two sweetie sisters talk about movies from the 80s and 90s that shape their childhood existence? And also that have a cat that makes a ruckus in the background? Do I? Let me tell you a podcast I started listening to called Large Marge Senus. Two sisters break down classic 80s and 90s movies like The Princess Bride, Never Ending Story, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. They even did a whole month dedicated to Fred Savage flicks. Wow, I love Fred Savage. Where can I get this magical podcast? You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or Google Play. You can also follow them on Twitter, at The Sweetie Club. And don't forget to tell them, Large Marge sent you to this podcast. Okay, Janelle. We've got a comment... Is that what you said? We have Our a new, new Patreon new supporter. Yeah. yeah. So welcome to the BG crew, Michelle Guest, our welcome. new Patreon supporter. Welcome, welcome. Uh, if you're interested in donating and becoming part of our family, uh, head on over to our Patreon. We have some great backlogged episodes. We yeah. are putting out a new series called Cocktails and Conspiracies, where I regale <laughs> gonna be so fun. a cocktail and a conspiracy to my boyfriend, Bo, and he screams in outrage over... How fucked everything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find that at thebadtastecrimecast.com slash donate. Yes. 
Uh, that sh- that'll take you right there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also it's not too late to get some merch for those last minute forgotten shoppers. <laughs> I mean, like forgotten gift receivers. Yeah, I mean, the people some, you forgot to people, buy for. Yeah, some people don't celebrate Christmas until after the twenty fifth. It's totally fine. <laughs> Me, I'm always that one that's like, you know, you guys get your gifts after the first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can go right on over to badtastecrimecast.com slash merch and we have hoodies and pencil cases you just posted a pencil case picture it mm-hmm. looked cool yeah they, um, they do a great job printing and our stuff and some stickers i think yep all kinds of things. stuff <laughs> so you can find that all there um what else what else what else keep an eye out for some stuff that's oh we actually do have an event that we can announce yeah um so on july 11th i want to say through the 13th i think it's just a one day well they have something going on friday evening saturday and sunday morning friday evening is just for podcasters is it just for podcasters to set up well they um will be announcing the full schedule on what's happening over the weekend but it's it's now multiple days (laughs) yes so july 11th and 12th we'll say 11th and 12th um janelle and i and our sound producer tiff is we are going to be in kansas city missouri for the uh true crime podcast festival 2020 Mm -hmm. tickets are available now at tcpf2020.com so head on over there for more information there's already a ton of podcasts signed up yeah um i'm Mm -hmm. so excited to like go on the road is the is the place actually finished it's not but we're staying in an airbnb so it's fine they're like it will be at a hotel that will exist yeah it'll be like it's literally opening in january i think yeah so So hopefully it's finished um so it'll be like brand spanking new Mm -hmm. but um break her in if you guys want to meet us meet a lot of other cool shows there are going to be some live shows there are going to be some discussion panels there's gonna be lots of stuff going on this weekend so you can check that or you can check that, that out yeah. at tcpf2020.com. Yes. I want to say 2019 because that was last year's, yep. but it's not. Yep. It's next year's. Whole new website. Whole new year. <laughs> Other than that, I think that's about it, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Our sound producer is Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Sakshowski, The Enigma. <laughs> that was my Christmas <laughs> present from Tiff. It's a, it's a hype button. I think she did that so she doesn't have to edit it in anymore. <laughs> so really, it's a Christmas present for her. It is. Uh, we will see you in two weeks. Have a great new year. Welcome to 2020, the end of the world. Start setting everything on fire. <laughs> Actually, don't do that. Please yeah. don't. Oh my god. This button. <laughs> <laughs>